0: welcome back to off the cuff i am your host danny lopriori i'm joined by a writer a wellness coach a therapist and a mental health educator let's welcome mina b to the show mina thank you so much for coming on the show uh you have a long list of uh professions here Mm -hmm. um and they're all very um you know Inspirational. Which one were you first? Were you a writer first, a wellness coach, a therapist, mental health educator? Which one was your passion first?
1: Oh, okay. So mental health has always been my passion, but I would say the first way I started expressing myself through that passion was through writing. Oh, okay. Um, I first became a writer and I've been writing since I was a child.
0: Was it like, did you write like fiction?
1: So I used to read a lot of fiction, Mm. and that was kind of like my escape from reality, Right. um, which is why I still love fiction in some sort of way because of the memories attached to it. Um, But I used to write a lot of poetry, actually. So that's that's how my writing started. I don't do too much of it now. My writing is more educational, but that is how I first started off writing. It was more so poetry centered around mental
0: health. Uh, Okay, yeah, as you get older, it's hard to find time for the fun stuff, right? (laughs) That's Agreed. what it is. It's what it is. It's hard. To, it's hard to find time for the fun stuff. So uh, just a couple questions. Um questions. Uh, where are you from? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what was, uh, you know, since you were writing poetry at such a young age, uh, did you have any influences like around the house or or friends that influenced you to start writing poetry and start writing, uh, uh, you know, fiction? Uh, I feel like as all kids, we always have somebody around us who's writing. We're like, oh, we kind of want to do that. Um, so what was that like for you?
1: So to start off, I'm from Queens, New York city.
0: Okay. Queens and, in the house.
1: Yes. Queens. <laughs> and to be honest though, I actually did not have anyone around me who was inspiring.
0: Yeah. Mm. Um, where in, it, where in Queens are you from? I'm from far Rockaway. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. I'm from, I'm from the hood y'all. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> So growing up, um, my parents would always buy me books. Like I was very, very big on reading. And I I think that's just what I naturally gravitated to from um, coming home, doing homework, math, science, always did horrible at that stuff. But when it came to like reading and things like that, I thrived very well. And in class, when we had like book assignments, I always did very well with those types of assignments. So my parents just naturally bought me books because they saw that was the area that I was succeeding in. And then I, as I got older, because of my love for books, it kind of just started shaping um, my ability to write. So I never really saw anyone around me doing it. I didn't have friends who do it. Like even till now, my friends hate reading. I'm the only one who yeah. had a bunch of books in my home <laughs> and I've always been this way. So I actually did not have anyone around me doing it. It was just something, I think that was just my natural talent that I was born
0: with. Very cool. Uh, I wish that I shared uh, the same affinity and love for reading as you do. Um, <laughs> I've tried to get into reading more. Um, it's just for some reason, the TV is so much more easier. Mm. But, you know, it's something that I definitely want to pick up. Um, okay. So Far Rockaway, I always have to ask, who's the best rapper from Queens ever?
1: <laughs> I don't even know. Um who, I mean, who's from Queens? What, Nas? Like, she's from Jamaica, Queens. Is she's this from
0: a... Jamaica, Queens. You got I'm 50 gonna... Cent. You got Nas. Oh, right.
1: right, okay. See, I'm, ah, man, you want me to choose between these people?
0: Yeah, and you're going to have, have to.
1: If, if we're going to put these three, if we're going to choose from these three, it has to be Nas.
0: It has to be Nas.
1: It has to be Nas.
0: As, as big of a poet as there is. Right, uh, right. Okay. So obviously Far Rockaway, shout out Far Rockaway. It's definitely the hood. Uh, I'm sure um, growing up in that, in that kind of environment, right? Reading is probably not the most popular thing that's going on. Absolutely not. You know, um, did reading and writing help keep you out of trouble and, you know, uh, you know, stray away from maybe some friends who probably weren't the best influence in life? Um, Did you find solace in those situations, you know, in terms of when it would come to your creative writing and uh, poetry.
1: Oh, absolutely! I think for me, um, the reading and the writing—it's twofold because I think right. it helped me in my home environment, which was kind of stressful sometimes. Yeah. And so being able to, like I said, it was a form of escapism. Which is why fiction pretty much was a big part of my childhood because I didn't have to really live in reality. and i'm I'm also a Pisces, so I'm very imaginative. I live in my mm-hmm. head a lot and I'm dreamy and I fantasize about a lot of things. Yes. And so when you read fiction, it kind of takes you to a different world and um yeah, I just love it. And so I think that one helped me with dealing with the stressors that were happening at home. Mm-hmm. And then two, um, I definitely, like I said, since childhood, I was always the only person who loved books. So in class, I was kind of like the nerd because in class, I always wanted to raise my hand and read the books out loud. And
0: (laughs) there's always one. There's always (laughs) one.
1: That was me. That was me. I was (laughs) that one. Okay.
0: There's always Um, one.
1: (laughs) So I think it definitely did help me with just managing life in many different facets.
0: Yes, yes. Um, Favorite book? Is there one? Or are you still searching for it?
1: Oh, man. Okay. One of my favorite books is East of Eden by John Steinbeck. And Mm. I don't even know how to put to words why it's my favorite book, but I just think the imagery around it Uh, The writing style is very unique to me, but that's also very old fashioned. I think one of my newest uh, favorite authors is Britt Bennett, and she wrote Mothers and she also wrote a book called The Vanishing Half. I love both books, but I will say The Vanishing Half is probably my all time favorite. It's a Mm. book that focuses on two twin sisters who are Black. But one of the twin sisters is actually white passing. She's very, very light-skinned. Okay. She's white passing and she decides to act out um, her identity and turns into a white woman, even though she's a black woman. And she succeeds at it, but it takes her on a very interesting journey to pretend to be a white woman. And she marries a white man and she has this child who's clearly white passing as well. Right. And she betrays, she she like leaves her whole family behind to live this white life. Um, And the whole book is about internalized racism. It's about, I mean, internalized oppression. I don't really like to say racism, but it's about internalized oppression. It's about colorism and the many different things that we navigate being black in this country. Um, and I think it's just a very, very well written book to encapsulate um, encapsulate all those different experiences. Mm. Um, yeah, it's it's an amazing. The
0: vanishing book. half. Now, yeah. Um, also, I see that uh, you know social justice is is something that's very important to you. Very. Um, as being a therapist and kind of seeing kind of all walks of life uh, come into your office, or you know. Uh, Do you, do you guys have an office now with COVID? No,
1: my living room.
0: (laughs) Right, right. That's right. Now they come into your living room like me. Um, Does, I've always wanted to ask as a therapist, does personal um, belief and personal um, morals, do they get tested a lot when you, when you are a therapist?
1: Um, absolutely. You know, this work is about we all have biases. Right. A therapist does not just erase their biases just because they're a therapist. Right. Which is why a therapist who is trying to practice ethically normally has a supervisor who they mm. go to the talk to about these biases or triggers or things that are coming up for them, but they also normally have a therapist as well. Oh, really? Yeah, that's very common. And it's interesting how some people are like turned off by that idea. No, I think that's great. It's Yes, that's a yeah. sign really of a healthy therapist, someone who is actually actively in therapy and someone who actively seeks out supervision to get feedback. On their clients, and of course, those mm. things remain confi- confidential. Right. Um, but that is the work of therapists can't do this work alone. So um, it's really important to recognize that sometimes those those biases and those things do get provoked you know, but it's our responsibility to check those things, right? I feel like that's the difference. Um, I might find myself getting provoked by something and I can't necessarily take it out on my client. That's work I have to now do in my own private time and say, what was the trigger? What came up for me? What are some things that maybe I'm still trying to process about these types of scenarios Mm. so that I can then better help my client without this feeling interrupting our sessions, you know? And that's what this work is like.
0: See, (sighs) you know, I'm an Aquarius. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be very difficult for me to be a therapist <laughs> because I would turn every, every session into my own therapy session. That's the problem. Now, obviously, you know, it's, it's a case by case, you know, s- situation. Um, but, you know, when I first was in therapy, you know, it took me a couple of therapists. Uh, I call it, I've called it therapist shopping mm-hmm. Um to find the right fit um ego wise if it doesn't work out with between you and a client do you say you know this is more of like the client's fault or not not fault but this is more the client's a decision or maybe there's something that i could work on you know because a lot of people they get their degrees and that's about it but there's a lot of continuing education obviously that goes on um when it comes to certain situations like that, when it's just not a fit, um, how do you move forward with something like that in terms of being, uh, you know, obviously a licensed therapist, what goes through your mind when it's just like, you know, it's just not a good fit. Cause that happens a lot. A lot of people ask me, um, you know, I've went to multiple therapists, uh, you know, they just, I just haven't found the right fit yet. Yeah. Um, Just if you could speak to what it's like to deal with so many clients and then also just have some of them, you know, not be a perfect fit for you or if it's not a perfect fit for them. And would you recommend that it's not a perfect fit before even the client can see it?
1: Oh, yes, absolutely. So to talk about it from my perspective, um, I have to know it's very important for a therapist to know what their limits are. We generally are not trained in every specific issue in life. There are therapists who they specialize, for example, in eating disorders and that's Mm. it. There are therapists, for me, my my specialty is in depression and anxiety. And I also touch upon childhood and racial trauma, right? You know, there are therapists who deal with uh, personality disorders, maybe clients who are borderline, maybe clients who have bipolar disorder. Mm. Um, may, there are some therapists who specifically only wanna work with people in the addiction field. So every therapist has their own unique specialty. And I think that's important because we can't take on every issue. And it's important for me to know what I just don't know and what I don't have further training on. And it would be a disservice to a client who has a specific need that I don't have any knowledge around. Or even if I have some brief information on it, I might find that, you know what, I don't think that I can help you in this area. And I'd rather refer you to someone who I know they specialize yes. in this particular issue. So if someone comes to me, for example, for an eating disorder, I would not work with them. Okay. You know, Um, now on the other side, if you are, and just to add to that too, I don't take it personally, right? Right. Um, I have to know what my limits are. That's healthy. That's me setting a boundary. Yes. Um, Now on the other side, I might have a client who I feel like I do work well, I can work well with, and I might feel like we are able to do good work, but they might find that I'm not a good fit for them. And it could be for a variety of reasons, right? Um, If they want to share that feedback with me, I take it and I don't take it personally, right? Because at the end of the day, I know that I can not be the right therapist for every client, right. right? And I want my clients to find their own agency and economy. And I think that that's empowering when a client can say to me, I actually don't think we're a good vibe together. Okay, great. So find your person. Right. That's what this work is about. Because if you don't think we're a great fit and you're scared to tell me and we continue to move, there's going to be resistance in the room and mm. I'm going to see it. Right. And so I'm going to have to be doing the work to try to get to it. And I'd rather my client share up front, like this is what's going on for me. And I don't think we're a great fit.
0: Yeah, save uh, a lot of t- save a lot of time for both of you in that in that sense. Right,
1: right. Because that's that's the thing. The resistance is going to show up. And I mm. think some people don't realize that. And then the work is going to start feeling draining and mundane. And it's not going to necessarily feel like it's moving in any, any direction because mm. there's some sort of elephant in the room. Right. And the elephant is that I really don't want to work with you and I haven't right. told you yet. And so I'm being discreet. I'm not sharing certain things or I'm acting a certain way in session. And that's not necessarily helpful. Helping us move forward. Right. So I do think for people who struggle with that, um, you know, one of my things would be to say, let your therapist know it's okay. Majority of the time, therapists it happens. Therapists right. are um, experienced that they. It, it's not like they're going to be taken aback. Okay. <laughs> you know. So I think that I want people to feel encouraged and know that, like you said, it's about finding the right fit. So everyone is not going to be your person and it's okay for you let your therapist know, even if after the first session, even if it's a month later and you realize oh, this isn't going to work, let your therapist know and that's okay. I'm sure they're going to be fine with it.
0: I always ask to um, do, do you think a therapist should be of the same sex? This was a question that I got uh, from one of the members of uh, the off the cuff community. Do you think it's better for men to see male therapists or females to see female uh, therapists?
1: Um, Honestly, that just boils down to personal preference. There is no right or wrong. Right. It's really up to the person. If you feel comfortable, it's like, if you go to the doctor, do you have a preference? Would you rather see a woman doctor or would you rather see a man doctor? Mm. It's the same thing with going to therapy. There really is no right or wrong because if that person is trained to do what they specialize in, then they will probably still be able to help you in specific areas of your life, you know?
0: Yeah. Um, so because it, I have, cause like, um, a couple people are just like, you know, I would feel uncomfortable, you know, you know, uh, whether it be talking about their sex life or talking about the, uh, their upbringing um, with a female. You know, I've had a male friend tell me that. And I was like, you know, I wouldn't really focus too much on that. I told him, I said, listen, if it works in terms of, you know, the correspondence that you have with your therapist. Stay in that because it, that practice is very hard. It's hard to get all of that groundwork back, you know. And uh, for him, it was something that you know. And now he has a female therapist, and they're great. Yeah,
1: yeah. you know,
0: it's, yeah. It's, it's it's a lot.
1: You try it, and if it if you're like I said, it's about finding the fit. Yes. So if you if you're a man and you're seeking a female therapist, you're not sure and you're having concerns, try it. And if it's not working, make a switch. You know, it really yeah. is right or wrong.
0: Uh, and also question two. Um, I read a very interesting article about a month or two ago. Uh, I want to remember the source, but I'm just on the Internet way too much. Um, dealing with sociopathic tendencies. In therapy, how quickly can you spot them? And also, can we talk about the importance of lying in therapy? Because Mm -hmm. a lot of people tend to do it rather than not share. Um, So, in terms of like, you know, um, the first half of the question, you know, dealing with some sociopathic tendencies in terms of treating someone, therapy big Sopranos fan, by the way. And then um, also, can you tell when a client is lying?
1: Hmm, okay.
0: That therapist intuition.
1: Right, right, right. So the first part, I will have to say that I have not necessarily had that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I don't know how much knowledge I can say I can give to that question. You know, um, right? a lot of the clients that I work with, our clients who are self-paying and they're seeking some sort of treatment for themselves. And so they're in a different, they're in a particular life stage. Right. We'll have to say I haven't had those experiences, right? So I wanna be mindful of what I can share.
0: Right, um, for sure.
1: But to answer the second part of that question, yes, I can always often tell um, when the client is lying. And that is because I listen. Right. And generally right. When people lie. There's gaps in their stories. There's there's something
0: right. that's
1: not adding up. And when you meet with the client multiple, normally I meet with my clients once a week. OK. Um, And when you're meeting with someone often, sometimes they don't really remember what they share. Right. They, they yeah. have pieces of it. As a therapist, though, I, I, I tend to remember lots of what we talk about.
0: Oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Right, you know, and so generally I do find, well, last week you said this, and this week you're saying that, Mm. so let's kind of, let's readdress that, because two weeks ago you were here and you were saying that, and so sometimes I kind of have to do that type of work to let people Uh, know that, you know, I hear what you're saying in the moment, but let's go back to three weeks ago, so you're thinking in the present, and I'm thinking about this whole cycle. Um so that helps with one recognizing certain things. Two um I often find that in the very beginning sessions there's generally a lot of hesitation. Right or like when you ask a, a person a question and they uh, respond by uh, giving the giving you the question back instead of being direct. Yeah, so it's like okay, yes, that is what I asked you, and then you're asking <laughs> again, and so let let's unpack that. Right, <laughs> why are you asking me this question when you clearly heard what I asked you? Right. Yes. And yes. generally, it's because they're think they're trying to give themselves time to think about what they want to say.
0: Yeah, I've been guilty of that.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. I'm sure we all have done that. Right. Uh, so uh,
0: what was that- your mom like? I'm like, well, what was your mom like?
1: <laughs> right. Like, give right. Give me a couple minutes. Give me a couple <laughs> minutes. Right. Let me think about what I want to tell you. So I find that those are generally clear signs, um, Or sometimes, you know, when somebody, if I'm doing intake and they're like, you know, I'd rather just get back to that question. I don't want to answer it right now. Um, And Giving them space to do that. But that also can sometimes when we do revisit those questions, I just like to pay attention to recognize, like, could there be holes in a story? And sometimes I I just might not know. But I I find that the truth always comes to the light. um, Because as I said, if the client is continuing to show up, There's going to be things that they say and there's going to be actions that they do that just don't add up. And so therefore you start to realize something's not connecting here.
0: Right. And then also, as you know, as a therapist, can you be confrontational in in those situations or do you have to just try and unravel it from like a like a different type of, uh, you know, different angle or different approach? Or is it, you know, okay to be like listen like i know you're not telling the truth here
1: yeah so i think there's healthy confrontation i think we generally look at confrontation as this bad thing that yes um, and i think it's generally because a lot of people's personal experiences with confrontation is its hostility it's being cursed out it's some sort of aggression um healthy confrontation really just looks like calling out what the behavior is
0: Uh. and
1: so um I generally will just be direct, you know, and let them know, like, you know, like I said in the previous thing, right, like last week you were saying this and now you're saying this right and so. I need a little help further understanding what it is that you're trying to tell me because these two things aren't adding up or um, you know i'm sensing here that something along the lines may not sound truthful. And I'm wondering if there's some other parts to this story that you might not be willing to share, or you're uncomfortable sharing. So I try to say it in a way where it doesn't necessarily feel like ta- an attack, mm. because it also depends on the rapport in a relationship. Yes. With the with the client. So if it's someone I've been seeing for a very very long time, we may have already developed some sense of rapport where that person feels safe with me, and they know me, right? And so they know that this is me in a style and this is what's going to come up in therapy where um, someone who is very much in the beginning process, who is still trying to build trust, trying to build rapport, especially if they share certain things about past relationships or there's a trauma involved. Um, I want to be mindful of those things, but I also don't let things just go unaddressed because it's not going to be helpful for the client.
0: Right. And in the long run, the work, uh, the groundwork is not going to be set for, right. for, for that client. Uh, right. I wanted to talk about obviously um being black and in, and in the mental health field, right. Um, can you just talk about how overlooked mental health is in, in the black community and have you seen it change throughout maybe the last couple of years in terms of people actually seeking help, especially those from black communities, you know, um, I remember like, obviously there's a lot of statistics that come out that there's a, there's a lot of mental illness or, you know, um, mental health issues, uh, in lower income neighborhoods. Um, and, but also primarily with the African-American community. Um, what do you think can obviously change that number for the better? And have you seen just in your personal, um, a more uh, a focus from uh you know the black community in terms of uh utilities to actually get the help um which is a big thing right uh, health insurance in america is, is a very very uh, crazy system you know it's it, it, it's it's not really set up that great especially for people that don't make money um and come from communities where they're just You know impoverished let's just be honest um have you seen an uptick in the positive uh amongst the black community in terms when it comes to seeking out therapy and actually following through with therapy
1: yeah so to start with the first portion of the question um there is a big stigma i i I would say over time the stigma has lessened and it's decreased from my personal experiences and from the things that i see But I think what's important for people to recognize about the stigma that has been upheld so long in the black community around mental health is that therapy is tied to the health industry in many different ways. And black people from our history in this country do not have positive experiences when it comes to the medical industry. We've been experimented on right? Um, We are generally underdiagnosed. There have been studies where doctors have biases where they do not give Black patients medication because they assume we have a high tolerance for pain. Um, As we see, Black women are three to four times more likely to die during childbirth for many different reasons, and a lot of that has to do with doctors not listening to Black women and their pain. Um, So, in many ways, therapy was not necessarily designed for the enhancement of Black human beings. Oh. So when you create a system, right, yeah. where you experiment on people, where you dehumanize people, and then you're like, hey, we're here to help you, those people are going to have some pushback. Mm. And I think the stigma in the Black community has been, mis- has been miscommunicated as a form of black people being uneducated when really there's a lot of validity behind why that stigma exists in the first place
0: yeah i see i never knew that i i always just thought that you know obviously you know america's got some bad history and then also but oh you know it's everything's just so unaffordable right right you know especially especially for lower income families um you know I've seen people that go, you know, they go to the emergency room for an emergency and they and they have a $50,000 bill. Like you said, it's tied to the health industry. So now they see that, they're like, oh man, I, I can't afford that. Right,
1: right. But that's one part of it. You that's know, just, that's like, just one piece It's just one part of this huge system that's right. broken, you know, and as we already know, the system was designed this way. It's not necessarily broken. It's broken specifically for certain people. Yes. And so... It's really important to, I think it's when we understand the history of the the um mental health industry or the health industry in general in relation to black people, I feel like it will give us a better understanding of why uh keeping our business to ourselves or this idea that therapy is for white people, um, all these different things actively make sense as to why right. black people have removed themselves from a system. There's that a has legitimate there's a leg-
0: harm. Yeah, there's a legitimate fear there.
1: Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So that's one part of this piece, right? Now we take into the things you're addressing here with, like, accessibility. Right. So I come from Far Rockaway. I live in the hood. Ask me how these clinics run. They're horrible. Right. I can just be straight up honest.
0: And right? the, most of the times the people there are like, you know... Uh, you know, listen, being a doctor and and it's, it's a very admirable job, but it's like, I understand if they have to see like 700 people a day, people aren't going to get the best care.
1: Right. And that's patients who studies have shown that when a client, um, is matched one with a therapist who looks like them and they our match with the therapist who is culturally competent, empathetic, nurturing, that helps with that client receiving a high level of care. Uh-huh. And I'm sure that spreads out to the medical industry as a whole, not just in therapy. Yes. You know, think about times when you've gone to the doctor. I know that if I have an encounter on my first experience with a doctor and you have to check my body and I have to trust your medical information and you're dismissing me and you're treating me a certain way, chances are I'm not going to want to come back here.
0: Yeah, right? and chances are you're not the you're not the only one probably exactly. dealing with that. Yeah,
1: right, right. There's a whole community of people, and so there are many different facets that's happening within a Black community where even like you said, healthcare is tied to our jobs. Mm-hmm. Right, if we are unemployed, we generally don't have medical insurance, and then if you are unemployed and you get Medicaid or Medicare. Um, those, the services attached to that are not necessarily always the best. They're going to be honest about that.
0: Yeah. They're not good.
1: Honest and say that there's a quality attached to certain things and it's always not the best quality attached to people, attached to things for people who are in poverty.
0: Yeah. And I, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, my parents were great. They are great. No, they just didn't have a lot of money growing up. So when my dad lost his job, we lost our health insurance you know, the last thing my parents were really thinking about was, you know, my, my son's mental health, you know, it was hard enough for them to just to get me to a physician at that point. So, so I feel like a lot of, you know, a lot of it comes from the financial standpoint, but I'm very enlightened by what you actually brought up is that there is a legitimate fear of the health system in the black community. That's very enlightening to me. That's going to be something that I'm definitely going to dive deeper on. Um, is this something that you learned in school or outside of school? Because you know schools could be very. We want to teach you this part. You know, it, 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 they they can be very gun shy when it comes to teaching. Um, you know about the history of yeah. medicine, right? Um, where did you study?
1: I went to NYU. NYU. Mm -hmm. Very,
0: very good school. At NYU, did you notice that obviously in these private institutions, right, um, uh, there's a very, like you said, what, what health is built on and the history, college is a very racist place at times. I'm not saying all colleges are racist. But, you know, a lot of these names on these buildings are white guys who don't have the best history. Um, You know, um, being NYU, you know, New York's a little more of a melting pot, I understand. But can you talk about what uh, race was like in college for you?
1: Yeah, of course. Um, I was generally one of two Black students in almost every class. (laughs) Um, Sounds
0: Sounds like NYU.
1: Yeah, sounds like NYU, right? Yeah, yeah,
0: Um,
1: it wasn't the best. So to answer your original question, this information that I learned, I learned it on my own. Right. This is my own research, my See? own um interest in my own people, in my community, and just having a better understanding of the disparities people um, who are black and brown face. And so this yeah. is information I had to learn on my own. Um I struggled a lot deeply with race when I was in when I attended NYU um i found myself in positions where i had to do a lot of educating as a black student to white students in the classroom and white professors um who were letting certain things or statements slide that i just was like this is coming out of the mouth of someone who said their career goal is to work with at-risk black youth and you think this is an appropriate thing (laughs) like no one's gonna challenge this
0: yeah yeah right (laughs) nobody
1: no one's gonna challenge this um, a lot of saviorism, a lot of savior complex. You oh, yes. Yeah. A lot of the savior complex would come up and just a lot of, um, I would, I would just say a lack of knowledge, you know, because right. a lot of the people who attended were coming from like the Midwest. And so they were coming from like, they were not city people.
0: That's what I'm saying. It's like yeah. the city is right. a melting pot. The right. students though. It's a little it's bit different, different, different. It's different. It's a little so, bit different. Now right. you're paying to where you want to go.
1: Right. Right. People
0: see New York as a cool place to hang out. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And I think, too, there's this illusion around this job being this cool thing of I can get into people's minds and I can help them. Yeah. And, you know, we all get into this profession because we clearly want to help people. Right. But we also have to challenge and assess what parts of ourselves is that being ego driven, where it's like, I feel like I can save people. Yes. versus I'm here to help people in order to help people. I also need to be on the other side of listening and learning and understanding and yes. challenging my own biases. And I felt like that was a, a big part of my issues when i was attending college you know a lot of that wasn't necessarily addressed and i think the atmosphere like i said i i did a two-year program and for right. those whole two years majority of my professors were white and i was generally one of two black students in the in my class settings for two whole yeah. years um so that says a lot and i think a lot of you know at the end of the day nyu is expensive also so yes. that plays a role in black students attending and getting scholarships and things like that um I but mean I the
0: system thinking. the system is is rigged
1: right it's right.
0: rigged you know it's uh you know it's you know you could have some kid who obviously doesn't have listen I wasn't a great student so pardon me if I don't get these test names right but you know horrible like ACTs and SAT scores but you know maybe their dad's got a good amount of money throws them a little bit of a donation maybe we put you on top of the you know instead of getting a deferred maybe we we accept this kid right it's a it's a crooked system it's what it is um see I want to go back uh to you saying that you had to do a lot of that studying yourself do you feel like school in general is just pushing kids to be in the best position to get this piece of paper, um, instead of actually being very, very good at what they're actually studying to be. Um, (laughs) you know, it's like, there's a lot of, in public school, it's, they teach you how to take standardized tests. That's it now, Mm -hmm. you know, um, in college, you know, people say like, you know, it's, it's a lot more freedom of what you get to study. But like you said, it was, you probably paid a good amount of money, um, to generally not have professors that, we're doing the best job yeah you know and this isn't to speak badly of nyu but let's just call it how it is it's a job for them too and a lot of teachers especially college professors are egomaniacs (laughs) you know uh and i'm saying that as a recovering ego egomaniac (laughs) you know um there's a lot of ego like you said with the savior complex that um that that white people love to do and it's very detrimental. Uh it it, it just kind of makes me laugh because it's like like how you said you have to explain a lot of these things. You know, and listen I'm I'm of Porter I'm I'm Puerto Rican and Italian, but I look more Puerto Rican than I do Italian. And you know a lot of my white friends growing up were just like well like you know you're half white I'm like, yeah, that's cool, you know, if if somebody comes up and asks me that. But I'm telling you this right now, if we go into a store, they're not going to follow you fine white Jewish gentleman around the store. They're going to follow the little Puerto Rican kid around the store. Mm -hmm. And that's happened to me multiple times. Uh, You know, race was something that I dealt with uh, internally, uh, with family issues, and then also externally. So I know what you're trying to say in terms of, not really trusting people, but a lot of people have to just understand that they have no idea what the hell they're talking about. Yeah. When it comes to black people, mm-hmm. uh, I'm not one of those people who's try to be like, you know, I know injustice when I see it, but I cannot relate to my black friends. I just can't. Yeah. So that's why I like to talk to them. I like to hear from them about their experiences. One, just not in everyday life, but in school is something that is very, very interesting to me. Because even when you pay this month these this large amount of money to go to these big schools, a lot of the times you don't get the same education as these white kids get. Yeah, it's very, very, very rigged. The entire thing. That's why I didn't go to college. <laughs> <laughs> you know, no, I, I just wasn't. I, I wasn't very good at, at books. <laughs> um, the next question I wanted to ask you too, um, being a black woman in America hardest job already (laughs) hardest job already in the business of America Um, what made you want to help people instead of being like you know a lot of people could be like hey no one's fucking helping me (laughs) you know what I mean
1: yeah yeah somebody gonna fucking help me
0: I gotta help all you people now (laughs) Uh, but, but you know uh what what in, what was the switch in you the saying that you know what people need help um i've been blessed enough to have a work ethic which is not many not everybody does yeah um be blessed enough to have a work ethic work your way at a far rock away that's wild all the way to nyu you know that's a wonderful story right there as it is you could close the book and that's it you don't have to do anything for the rest of your life you know what i mean you go far walk far rock away to nyu that's it the movie's yeah. over yeah um, thank you you know what i mean and then what after that was like you know what i was blessed enough to have this in my life
1: because
0: i do believe it's a blessing to be able to come from these bad uh these bad neighborhoods and make it to you know doing the something that you really want to do with your life when did you know that this was something that you wanted to do with your life
1: so I actually knew from very young. Um, and when I say young, maybe like back in middle school to high school.
0: Oh, you're one of those, um, huh? Yeah, actually I'm actually knew what you wanted to do.
1: <laughs> I, I kind of knew from early on.
0: You guys are the worst.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm that kid. I was that kid.
0: Teacher's pet <laughs> knew what they wanted to do with the rest of their life. Man.
1: I was that kid um i had multiple things of course but this was always on my list right um, you know at one point i uh wanted to open a bakery and i wanted to be in the fashion industry and i was like i also wanted to be in mental health and the reason why i wanted to be in mental health is because for a very long time i knew something was off with me mm. but i did not know what it was
0: you mean both um, baby yeah <laughs>
1: And when I say off, it was because, you know, I grew up struggling with depression and I did not know that until I went to therapy as an adult and learned about my past and realized these issues I had, these symptoms I had were related to depression. Yes. Um, And then I was like, oh, no wonder no one else like had these crying outbursts like I did or no one had these crazy thoughts like I did or like you know no one had these things and because of that um it always made me very curious to have a better understanding of what's wrong with me Mm -hmm. and that always stuck so I was one of those people who struggled with depression in a very curious way where it was like something's not right what the hell is this right and I want to figure it out like I want to know what's actually happening to me Um, but at the time I didn't know there was a word for it, but I just knew my friends aren't don't relate. And I knew naturally in my body that this just wasn't how life was supposed to be because of the thoughts that I had. I had self-harming thoughts. I had a lot of struggles and I was just like, there can't, there's no way this is what life is supposed to be like. There's no way this is what the feeling is supposed to be. And that's kind of how I always uh, managed my depression growing up and what- Stuff it down, baby. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, until, and you know, I was a kid too. so Yeah, no,
0: that's how it is. You don't know. You're like, what the hell is this? Right. Like I said, to, to reiterate what you're saying, what, when I went to therapy, you know, a lot of it was like, oh yeah, there's some stuff that happened when I was a kid that I just kind of forgot about.
1: Yeah.
0: Which is why, which is wild to think about. That's how powerful the brain could be. Right. That they're just be like, oh yeah, oh yeah, that 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 thing did happen that one time. that's not cool.
1: Right, right. And you address
0: that about it because it's it's important. Yes. It's an important
1: part of your story. Um so I will say that the what helped me pursue the actual field is I went to college and I when I was trying to, when I was going on to graduate from high school, I still was very conflicted around what do I actually want to settle on? And when I think about it, like to make such a big decision at 18 years old is kind of
0: wild. Yeah, I don't <laughs> but, even know what I want to eat.
1: Right, right. You know, so <laughs> at 32. I think that
0: exactly
1: you know so i think in that aspect when i think of school i think there is a lot of pressure for for children at 18 years yeah you're growing into adulthood but you're still child your brain isn't even fully developed yet um so to make a huge decision around what do you want to do in life as a career is kind of hard um so i was still struggling between do i want to enter the mental health field Do i want to be a fashion designer what do i actually want to do so i went to school for business
0: yeah (laughs) why not
1: business I was yeah. like hey I, I can just have a business degree and pursue something with it and what I did while I was in business school for undergrad was I took all of my elective classes and something around the psychology field so I had sociology cool. I had psych 101 102 I did all those different things what ended up happening was my sociology professor ended up being a social
0: worker ah. she was
1: a black woman as well And she probably, I don't remember her name, but I still remember what she looks like. And she, you know, you just have that one person who makes an impact.
0: Yes. She made
1: an impact. And after having her class, I was like, this is it. This is what I want to do. And so at the time, my, 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 Thought process was I'm going to continue on to get my MBA because I knew I was going to get a master's degree.
0: It's um, also just a great. It's anyone that's listening that's in school. A business degree is probably the base one, the best yeah. base one to have. Yeah. Let Let's be real. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, right. It's, and then it's, I, it's the best one to have. If you have that, you're you're good. You could do some other. Right, stuff. You can do many things with that. Very smart. Very smart.
1: <laughs> so that's what I did, and I was going to get my MBA, but after having that one professor. I was like, I'm going to pursue social work. And that was it from there. And I have been practicing since and I love what I do.
0: That's a beautiful thing. Um, you know, um, if you're going to be paying for it, it might, be, might as well be something that you love. Right. Right. Absolutely.
1: Absolutely. And that's
0: another thing, too. Even the touch on like that kids have to make these big decisions at 18. That's also like an old thing that just like needs to be done with. Yeah, You know, uh, just curriculum-wise, I have a whole problem. I have many problems with school curriculums, uh, just public school curriculums. It's like, can we teach a kid how to write a check before we teach them calculus? Yeah. You know? It yeah. just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, this kid doesn't sense. even know how to write an email or, mm-hmm. or, or make a resume, but we're over here teaching them long division. Like, come on. It's, everyone has calculators. <laughs> um, Let's get into me now. All right? Oh. Okay. Let's get into me, all right? <laughs> um, just for the audience, prior, you know, uh, I tried to have as uh, small of a conversation with Mina before because she's a therapist and I, I didn't want her to hold any punches on me. So here we go. Um, as a male, like I said, a recovering ego addict, how can I, as a male, understand the opposite sex more? <laughs> or at least try
1: <laughs> try that's an interesting question and i think it, it gets brought up a lot um yes. I, it's fascinating to me so i think in any i think one opposite sexes men men and i'm going to be specific to talking to people who identify as women and right. who identify as men for the purpose yes. of this conversation Um, I think there is some sort of generic rule or idea that we all operate one specific way. So all men operate this way and all women operate this way. And so we want to figure out, I want to figure out how this lady operates, but I'm using a framework of all women. Mm -hmm. And I think that needs to be thrown in the garbage. Um, I feel like as a man, if you want to understand the opposite sex, you need to communicate, Mm -hmm. you know, you need to ask clarifying questions. You need to build connection with that person. You need to have mutual interest and in, there needs to be some sort of mutual interest. You need to have a better understanding of how do I get to know you? And I think it's important that if you're trying to get to know me, Mina B, you don't use the framework of, well, this last girl I knew like this, or this last girl I knew was like this. So let me use that same standard on Mina. It's not going to work because Mina's not that last girl. Right. right. And I think what we need to do is honor individuality, because we all have different life experiences that drive the way we think, feel, behave. And instead of approaching the opposite sex with this universal idea of who they are, I think it's really important to get a better understanding of who they are through communication. Because I know a lot of women who um, don't operate the way that I do, right? right? And I think that It's very, if I meet someone who's using the same standard, they're going to end up hurting themselves because they're having, they're placing expectations on me that it's like, that's your fault.
0: You're going to end up holding this L, bud.
1: Right. You know, so I think for you, Danny, um, I think I want, I encourage you to get a little more specific with that because every person that you meet of the opposite sex is going to be completely different. They're going to have different needs. They have different love languages, right? They have different ways of communicating. Um, But I think when we all learn to be assertive and we learn to communicate and we learn to be inquisitive and have a deep desire to understand people for who they are, that helps with building bonds and relationships.
0: Because like, there's like a fine line between being like sensitive and overly sensitive, right? Um, in in relationships but I feel like if something's important to you it doesn't make you sensitive
1: absolutely not
0: you know Um, and that's where just like kind of like compatibility comes down to it you know people have different thresholds for certain things exactly you know Um, and then the other question that I wanted to ask you about is insecurities Mm -hmm. you know what is something that as a male um like you said we have this you know well i'm talking about cis cisgender males right, right. you know uh it's and you know we have to be this uh all encompassing man a lot of the time um but we're insecure mm-hmm. we're boys a lot of the time you know uh you know how do people recover one from insecurities? And also how can one build on strengthening themselves to not fall victim to these insecurities in terms of relationships?
1: Yeah, well, the two are overlapped in many ways because yeah. more you want to strengthen it, you need to have a better understanding of what's causing it, what the root of that insecurity is, and the things that continue to feed that insecurity Mm. Um, You know, so there are many things that can cause us to feel insecure, maybe things that we heard about ourselves wrong. up, maybe we have insecurity about Oh, that's one. Yeah, you know, (laughs) right. It it can be very important to go back and see, like, you know, where did this framework come from? Where did these ideologies come from? And what role do I play in furthering this insecurity?
0: There's the one
1: yeah you yeah. know i think sometimes we hear these things by, by, about ourselves and we have these insecurities and so we live by them oh i'm not beautiful so therefore i'm not going to try to date or i'm right. not going to do these things and that's actually you furthering that insecurity so i think it's really important for us to one get to the root um because i think sometimes when we get to can get to the root of things that can help bring more clarity around where this started why it was meaningful to us. Why did we allow that? Why did we allow that situation to uh, leech upon us or like get attached to us? We were now- Right,
0: and now it won't out. leave.
1: And now it won't leave. And a lot of the time it doesn't leave because well, this the, the insecurity I have came from my parents, right? And what they said is valuable to me and I can't seem to let this thing go. Maybe right. they are right. Right. So sometimes when we hear things about ourselves, depending on who it's coming from, it can definitely leave an imprint, because if it's coming from someone in our community of trust, it can definitely hurt us. And we might hold on to that. And we want to do the work of recognizing that people's opinions of us are not the standard of our worth. And we have to figure out what is our worth? What are our values? And we say that again,
0: because that's a bar.
1: What did I just say? (laughs) Okay, other people's opinions of us is not a standard of our work. Yes. And we have to stop treating opinion like that. And we have to start getting comfortable with using the I and saying, I am XYZ. Not what I'm not who who mom said was I was. I'm not who my ex said I was. I'm not even who my boss said I was. I am XYZ. And this is kind of like affirmation building. Mm, you Confirmation building you yourself from those um insecurities but outside of saying that i am you have to live it out you have yes.
0: to yes well that was le- leading yeah. into my next question um can you explain and also hammer home that there's a lot of homework when it comes to therapy and it shouldn't scare you but there's a lot of homework after you leave the office it's an ongoing thing that a lot of people I feel like don't know about, they don't understand, and they don't realize like, after I leave uh, Mina's office, I have to practice these things. Yeah. There's practice. Um, so can you kind of, you know, for uh, us us non, uh, you know, licensed therapists, uh, I like to feel like I am a therapist, but I am no way a licensed therapist. Uh, how extreme and how important is the homework when it comes to therapy?
1: It's very important, very, very important. It's just as equally as important as having your session, to be honest. Mm. Um, you know, I'll, I'll talk from my own perspective of how I do my client centered work. I always let my clients know that my work is here to empower them. And to help them build practices so that they have the tools when they're outside of my office.
0: Mm. We
1: only see each other once a week, and I want you to be able to lean on yourself and others for support, um, even when you're not directly seeing me.
0: Coping and in mechanisms. Order to do
1: that right. In order to do that, you have to be willing to do the homework that you learn. That the things that you learn in session and the homework that I give. This is to help move your life further.
0: Yeah. You know. Um, yeah.
1: People attend therapy, you know, therapy can be short term for people and it can be long term for people. It depends on your needs and your desires. But I really, my work is really rooted in helping people feel empowered and know that even outside of the therapy room, there are ways that you can cope and there are ways that you can manage these difficult feelings that you're having. And I think what happens is we wanna heal, but we don't wanna do the work. We yes. I think a lot of people think healing is just talking. If I talk about my problems, my problems will go away, but there's action that needs to be um, involved. You can talk about the things that have happened to you and you can talk about the the lived experiences that you have, but there's also a huge form of behavioral activation that has to go along with it. So if you're just going to talk all day, (laughs) um, maybe you're just looking to talk to a friend, and, you know, it's really important. And this is why I'm very transparent with my clients to let them know, this is what you can expect from me. This is how I navigate therapy. There are going to be things that you that I assign to you. And if you don't do it, I, I want to address what came up for you. This right. is not like a, I'm going to, uh, you know, scold you for not doing these exercises. But I think it's really important for you to see um, what's coming up for you that's stopping you from doing these things and how you might be standing in your own way sometimes and a part of this is helping you be responsible over yourself. Mm. So yeah, I just think that it's very important for homework to be given and I think it's equally important for that homework to be done. Awesome.
0: Um, another question that I always ask, and I get it out all the time from people uh, in my DMs because they know that I'm obviously a mental health advocate and you know um, you know, I struggle with very bad panic disorder, anxiety, and uh, I'm bipolar type two, so you know I I, I deal with some stuff. Mm-hmm. But you know, um, a lot of people that I talk to, like to go back to what we were talking about, have a hard time finding the resources. Mm. You know, I know this is a state by state usual thing, but but is there a place where people can start the process of? you know, possibly finding an affordable therapist or finding, uh, you know, for me, I had to go to the emergency room and be like, Hey, listen, I need to talk to somebody, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't recommend that, but I'm just saying that's the extreme that I had to go to because I didn't have health insurance at the time, you know, when I was having a nervous breakdown Um, is not exactly like a a landing page or anything, but what do you think is the necessary step for people that are seeking mental health, but they're afraid that they can't afford it or, you know, they don't have a, a network in place for them?
1: Yeah. Um, so it, it's very multi-layered. So one, there is a landing page, right? I think Googling these resources are very important. We don't really know what's available to us until we search for it. You yes. know, that's the hard part. Um, so I think one, if you are seeking some sort of services and you don't know where to look, the first place to look really is searching for it, research. Go go to Google, type in your zip code, look for uh, mental health clinics near me. Um, We have the standard uh, search engines like psychology today. Um, Well, actually, let me start start from the beginning. Right. Let me reframe so that to to give people a step by step. So let's talk about people who uh, let's say they have insurance. Mm -hmm. or they have the they have some sort of financial resources you can go directly to therapy search engines like psychology today betterhelp.com therapy for black girls and when you go on these search engines there's an option for you to choose the health insurance panel that you already have and so that's a great way to search you type in your zip code type Mm -hmm. in your health insurance and boom you have a list of people that you can look through then if you are not using health insurance but you do have some sort of financial resources set a budget. Now share a therapy session can range from hundred dollars up to $300 or even more. And it's all very state by state type of clinician, all those types of things. So I think it's important to assess your finances and ask yourself for an hour of my time each week. And this is very important to me. I need it for my mental health. How much money am I willing to spend on myself? This is mm. a personal investment, right? And so let's say you find that number go on again, go on these websites and these people have their fees associated on their website. One of the things that you can do if you say you find someone and they're like, they look like they might be a great fit, but they're kind of out of my scope. See if they offer a sliding scale. A sliding scale is when a therapist offers a reduced rate for people who have certain financial needs, they may not even have a job because some therapists allocate scholarships so that they can fund free sessions for certain people or even have lower cost sessions. So look for a sliding scale option. Now, let's say you don't have those resources, those financial resources at all. SAMHSA.gov, which is spelled S-A-M-S-H-A.gov, is for all states. And you can just type in your zip code and it'll show you the clinics that are in your zip code. So it doesn't matter what state you're in, as long as you're in America, you can utilize that website, type in your zip code and it'll show you free mental health clinics to give you more information about mental health clinics because I don't think people realize that clinics you can be serviced for free. So there's a lot of push for free therapy but there are actually clinics that give free therapy Mm. um, because these clinics, runoff of grants by their city, by this whatever state they in. The city gives them grants so that they can afford to serve people in their area. Now, of course, sometimes these clinics are at capacity. We talked about clinics earlier. Right. Sometimes, you know, it depends on the clinic, but give it a try. Um, another thing to know about clinics is because they're funded by the state, they also service people who are undocumented. That's very important as well. Because if oh. you're undocumented, you probably can only pay out of pocket if you yes. want to go the therapy, right? Yeah. So if you're undocumented and you don't have the financial resources, it's best for you to look for a clinic in your neighborhood or see if that therapist is will has a scholarship that services people who are undocumented who don't have to pay. So those are some ways to look. But as I said, research is always just going to be the thing because- Hey, who who knows what's in the neighborhood, right? Yeah, you know you right.
0: don't know what's out there until you look, really. Right.
1: Right. So I would say that and my last thing too to add to that is Therapy groups don't get the amount of recognition that they deserve because peer support and group support is very vital for people who struggle with like addiction or anxiety or things like that. So I encourage people to look for um, on these websites, look to see if there's a support group, um, a therapist-led support group, because support groups are generally cheaper than a one-on-one session. So if you are struggling, and you feel like you do want one-on-one, but you can't afford it, nothing else is coming up for you. I do encourage people to look for therapists who are leading groups, because those groups are generally cheaper.
0: Mina dropping heavy bars. <laughs> hey, I, I, I hope you know you're gonna help so many people with what you just said. I hope so, I hope you, so. <laughs> you will, trust me, trust me. And um, you know, even personal friends, that are very close to me. I'm going to let them know about what you said and it's going to help them out too. So I appreciate it. Thank you so yeah, much. That's awesome. Um, like two or three more questions. You okay? Yeah. yeah okay. We're good. All right. All right. So I'll, I'll get them out. I know you're way busier than I am. I'll tell you that. Um, the, uh, one of the last questions that I have as a therapist, right? When it comes to dating for you, Is there a big psychoanalyzation that's going on? (laughs)
1: Honestly, not
0: at all. No? Wow. Yeah.
1: Not at all. I mean, I have my standards and I have my desires from what I want from a partner. Right. But
0: I honestly. Because nobody ends up caring about you guys. That's what I feel like. Therapy. Nobody cares about therapists.
1: (sighs) I, I would. I honestly, even with my friends, I don't go around psychoanalyzing
0: people. You uh, know, now, never. I, maybe just like a little bit.
1: I, okay, like <laughs> depending on like you know what it is. If my friends, for example, are coming to me and they're like, "Our relationship really need advice," your input, right? I really need your input. Then I'm like, okay, let me turn on my psychoanalysis here because this is what's naturally. Co- I mean, also a lot of this work is intuition work, right? Yes. Um, and so.
0: Can you you elaborate on like what that means just so for the the listeners
1: and and me? Yeah, yeah. So I think what it is about therapy is a lot of this work is clearly the things that we study. We have to learn about mental illnesses. We have to learn about mental health. But there is also a part to this that I think is unique to the individual person. It's a skill that they possess where from doing this work naturally, it kind of becomes who we are as beings. So for example, I teach about boundaries as a therapist, but I practice them in my life as well. Mm. So I might, I might have a conversation with someone and talk a certain way and they'll be, they'll be like, you know, I feel like you're giving me therapist lingo. And it's like, no, but this is just who I am. Yeah. like Practice this is, what you preach. I, exactly. I practice what I preach. And I think sometimes people kind of feel like it's therapist lingo when it's like, no this is actually embedded into who i am as a person
0: yeah i'm not, I'm not trying to put around, on for you
1: right i don't just go around teaching my clients things and then when i leave the office i'm some random person that yeah. does practice what i
0: preach And like you think i want to work now while i'm out <laughs> having a good time
1: right right so I, and i think that's what happens i think some people see it as me turning on my psychoanalysis when it's really just like no that that doesn't sound healthy but it's you have choice so if this is a choice you want to make go ahead and do that. Right. And I think sometimes people confuse it as, you know, you're being a therapist in the moment when it's like, no, like, this is just who I am. And but your opinion's got
0: to be, like be like gospel. it got to be like gospel live.
1: I, I would say that my friends really <laughs> value my advice.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. It's like, hey, listen, hey, uh, you know, because your friends, they obviously know what you do for a living. So those texts can turn into, into right. free sessions sometimes.
1: Right. Right. It can. You know, it it's can. like, hey,
0: man, you got to <laughs> give me a little bit of cash here.
1: There's, there's limits involved. But- yeah. Sorry.
0: <laughs> yeah. This yeah. Is Blue Cross it Blue has. Shield. What are you working with here? <laughs> I'm telling you. That's That's why it's like for you. It's like. um, I'm happy that you have a a kind of a fence. Uh, because I feel like that would drive me insane. I already psychoanalyze people all day and I don't know anything.
1: Yeah, yeah, you I know.
0: have a sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah, see, that's, that's the ability though of what makes a very good therapist yeah. is being able to not judge, but you still kind of have to at the same time because you want the person's best, you have the person's best interest. And like you said, it's, on, it's in a non-confrontational way. You're helping build coping mechanisms, but you have to be truthful.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. It's a it's a form of healthy judgment. I think we all engage yes. um, judgment in some sort of way, but we want to make sure it's healthy judgment and not necessarily biased or confrontational judgment. And that,
0: I, I think that's what a lot of people in relationships have a hard time with as yeah. well: yeah. Our, our healthy judgments. Um yeah how can you have healthier judgments in a relationship?
1: Yeah, I think one, it's less about making assumptions about people and being communicative and assertive, right? Um, And it's also about being a willingness to confront Difficult things and have hard conversations. A lot of people don't know how to have hard hard conversations, so their judgment generally comes off as confront difficult, negative confrontation. Yes, you know, and it's fueled by some sort of emotion. It's and there's like a
0: there's a tonality there that gets a little right. You know.
1: Right. So therefore, it does come off feeling harsh. It comes off feeling confrontational in a negative way. Um, And I think when people can learn to recognize that we all have feelings and our feelings are valid, but we don't have to act out our feelings and we don't have to let our feelings drive how we communicate or how we engage with people, that's important. Yeah, because you know, we all might get triggered by certain things that our partners do or our friends do, but in order to engage in healthy conversations, we have to like learn to sit with those emotions and lead from a place that is less confrontational. Yes. Um, and I think that can just be difficult for some people.
0: Yeah, I, I like especially me, like personally, like I try to hold off, but something doesn't let me hold off. You know, it's I haven't mastered that ability to kind of just hold, yeah. hold, hold the door a little bit because then, uh, twenty four hours later, you're like, this is this is not a big deal to me, right? So if I could just wait, it'll be very beneficial, right? Um, in terms of learning to wait, do you have any tips?
1: Oh, this takes practice. I, know. I Will say, I, I and I, yeah, it yeah, takes yeah. Practice And I want people to know that because I think yes. sometimes. Like, how do I do this thing? And he try it for a week. And it's like, it's not working. So I yes. gave up. Nothing so here is going to be a quick fix, every- people. Right, right. Yeah. Like the everyday practice. But I think one, assessing the trigger can be important, right? Sometimes we know what our triggers are. And we know how it's going to make us feel. And when you know how it's going to make you feel, or let's say there's a person. That every time I go to work and there's just this person, I can't stand
0: <laughs> yeah. right cuz that happens yes right and so most of the time it does
1: most of the time it does but you know right you know the environment you know the situation be prepared have tools in advance when this person approaches you what are you going to say how are you going to set a boundary what are some things that you can practice in advance so i the first thing i just encourage you to do is what ways can you practice in advance for environments that you frequently attend and are around people that you just know what to expect so that you can prepare yourself because you can't change them. So you have to work on you. You have Ah. to figure out how to show up in the moment, right? Another thing in that moment is, I feel like a lot of people overlook this, but deep breathing in the moment, I feel like this is a skill that takes a lot of time. But when you focus on your breath, I think it can be really important because once your heart rate starts Uh, speeding up and you find your breathing getting more tense and tense that's showing you that something's happening here. That fight or flight. Exactly. I'm becoming dysregulated. This is a sign that I might get impulsive or I might explode. What's going to happen? Let me pay attention to my body. This is a holistic practice. What is my body telling me in this moment? And I think that when we can learn to be mindful in a moment and listen to the body, we can also realize I don't want to act on this so let me take a moment now on the other end it might cause people to retreat but i think at the end of the day it's going to take you a a while to just develop trial and error right trial and error right and uh, another thing is i just say learn the power practice the power of pause you know everything doesn't need an immediate response Mm. you know and so learn to add to your language i need to get back to you on this you know what i need about 10 minutes I, Uh. i just take a deep breath
0: Where's
1: Let's my pen? Reassess. <laughs> Let's reassess this situation. I think as people, we lean into the act of urgency a lot. Yes. Right? I think everything requires an immediate response. Everything requires our immediate attention. And I think when we learn to engage in the power of pause, we recognize that when we have that space in the middle, we can learn to attend to certain things uh, with less emotion involved and more um, compassion, more gentleness, and a better ability to communicate directly. Um, you know ever think think about like scenarios where it's like I wish when this was happening I would have said xyz right yeah <laughs> you know? yeah yes and so by by giving yourself some space you can formulate thoughts or sometimes you think to yourself I wish I wouldn't have said that right you know and so I think when we can realize my one you know your body you know when you're getting dysregulated I can't determine that for you so when you start to notice the signs Do the work of saying, okay, I I don't need to do an immediate reaction right now. Maybe I need to separate myself. I'm going to give myself permission to separate from this moment.
0: And people have to understand understand that they they have this big win-loss complex, too, when it comes to exchanges with people, whether they're partners or or employees or random people on the street. You have to lose that, too.
1: Yeah, that's important. Yeah. Yeah. That's very important that you bring up, because I think we're very committed to being right, and this kind of goes back to personal responsibility, right? How are you playing a role in the suffering or hurt that you're having because you wanna be right in the moment. Yes. So when you hear certain things, instead of just letting it go or uh, leaving certain situations, you continue to give and give and give. And it's like, for what? what is the outcome? What is the goal? What is your intention? Mm. So I encourage people to think about what is my intention if I continue saying these things, if I continue engaging this, what is my goal here? Is it because I just want to have the last thing? How is that gonna benefit me? Now I'm I'm, I'm emotionally exhausted. I wanted to have the last thing.
0: That's a that's a big thing though. Like I need to say the last thing. It's like what is what's going on with you? Right. But um sorry. So I have two more questions. One one has to do uh, with medication versus holistic um and then the other one uh is about hypnosis um let's start with hypnosis do you believe in hypnosis do you think that it's uh something that is a logical and let's even say ethical mental health practice
1: yeah hypnosis is something that i will have to say that i don't have like enough education on
0: it i just want to stop you the power of what you just said is something that more people in this world need to learn that sentence yeah yeah learn the sentence it is perfectly fine just not knowing about something right and be like hey i'll get back to you let me do a little bit of research Yeah. yeah I, I'm sorry, I had to cut you off. I just I stress that so oh, much.
1: People pe-
0: people just have to be willing to be like, hey, I don't know about it, right? that's Right,
1: it. and that's you So I, I hope that I can lead by example for folks.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, you are trust <laughs> um, me with this entire conversation. I'm good.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I I don't have enough education on it. um So clearly, I it's not something I practice, and it's something right. I've done. What I will say is, I in regards to ethical. Uh, the ethical approach to it I'm not sure if that is an ethical practice and I would have to do more research right. on that too um I have heard some stories around it and they were not the best um because when you are hypnotized and you are not necessarily in your state of mind I, I have heard some stories that didn't turn out too great about things that could happen me too. Me, in your, yeah. Yeah, me too <laughs> so I think that in that type of practice, again, it's up to the client. It's their preference. I always say, um, don't rely on other people to educate you. Sometimes you have to educate yourself, mm. you know? So do research on it. If it's something that maybe you have a friend who has tried it and they can give you some insight. It's kind of like the psychedelic movement happening. Right. Too. Not something. That's well, something that's what that's
0: I was going to try and go into. Because like people like yeah. microdose now and, you exactly. know.
1: Right, and that's something I'm starting to research upon myself because it's becoming newer, um, and I I don't know too much information around it, and so I, I would love to be able to inform clients and have a better understanding of, like, pros and cons that I can share with them. But the same way I have to do research on it and using the, I'm sure we all have the same engine, search
0: engine. right? Yeah, yeah we all do. Right? So Google's I, I, always there.
1: Right. And I, I want to empower people to know that you can educate yourself in the process too. Like just because I'm a licensed therapist doesn't mean I'm a know-it-all. Right. right. So I, I think it's just really important for you to feel comfortable with whatever practice you engage in. But before engaging in it, I do think it's important to just have research behind it so you can know what you're getting into.
0: Yeah. Cause a lot of people tie it to like meditation at the same time, but like, right. you know, meditation, I always see more as like a self-practice. Even if you're doing it within a group, it's like, you know, you can't argue with the science of things sometimes.
1: Yeah,
0: And, you know, like you said, mental health is not really a, a quick fix. It's just, it, it it's it's years and years of of things that you've already dealt with. You know, yeah, you're
1: gonna it's you're going yeah, work. It doesn't necessarily stop. Like even if you get to a place where you can where you're like, all right, I'm leaving therapy and I can do I'm I can do all this on my own. You're not necessarily doing it on your own because we have community. Yes. Um, but it's an ongoing practice. There is no one shot deal that is that's gonna help cure you.
0: Yeah. Um, and then also a lot of questions that I get is um medication versus no medication Mm -hmm. um you know what what do you feel is i i always say when people ask me to each their own you know that's what i try to do as i I tell them listen i'm not a licensed therapist but i take an antidepressant um and it helps me a lot you know it, it it does um what do you recommend with people that are saying possibly like they're on the fence and they don't know uh, coming from the professional, um, you know, what are some advice that you can give to people that don't know or don't have the proper information about these things? Obviously, do the research, but what do you recommend to those people?
1: Yeah, I mean, my approach is pretty much like you have to make that choice, right? Yeah. You have to feel comfortable doing it. But I do feel like for people who struggle and they're like, should I do it or not? I I do encourage them to assess what's stopping me from feeling comfortable enough to do it. Because I find there's a lot of shame. I find shame and stigma is the number one reason why a lot of people opt out.
0: That's why I was afraid to start it.
1: Right, right. And then it just got
0: so bad. I said, I don't care what anybody thinks about me.
1: Right. You know, I think about it. If you went to your medical doctor, and you were just diagnosed with a medical illness and you needed this medication to save your life, would you have the same reservations as being on an antidepressant, right? And I think generally it's, no, people do a lot of medical treatments all the time for their medical health, but for some reason when it comes to mental health, there's this belief that I should be able to work through this and I don't need medication. Um, There's a lot of scientific words that are hard to like explain and share, but there's a lot of research on how certain mental illnesses rewire the brain.
0: Yeah.
1: So this medication is actually very helpful for folks in regards to the way uh, the brain gets rewired when you are struggling with things like depression or anxiety or even trauma, the way trauma impacts the brain. For sure. I think when people, Look at it from that pers- per, uh, perspective. To me, medication is a part of a holistic approach. It's about taking care of your full body um, and your full being. And sometimes you, sometimes there are going to be some people who can manage their mental health without medication, but you might yeah, not. Good be for that. you guys. Right? You know, like it's good that yeah. you are not that person. We yeah. all have a very unique journey. And I think that when we learn to get to the root of what the shame and the stigma is and we focus on ourselves and we learn to focus on what we need and we silence the voices of other people and their opinions, then I think that that will help us make wiser decisions to better our mental health. Um, So I think for people who have reservations ask your medical doctor, you see a psychiatrist, you can even talk to your therapist about it. I do urge people to find people in the industry that you can talk to um because I also think that we hear a lot of theories from other people who have no knowledge yes. <laughs> around medication and mental health who just have these strong opinions and it's like but they're not doctors, they're not right. therapists. So they're just speaking from a place of their own personal belief system and our belief systems don't necessarily save us from a mental health crisis so I think it's really important that you do research with someone who has the skill set and the medical education to give you answers that you're looking for
0: mm. Mina, I mean listen I've taken up enough of your time today it's been fantastic I could talk to you for five more hours but it would cost <laughs> it, would, it would cost me like six seven hundred dollars. something. <laughs> Um Where can uh, the audience find you your practice um, if you're living in the New York area, New York City area? Um, where can the listeners find you?
1: Yes, of course. so currently my practice is full and I'm not taking on clients, but it dang means- it,
0: that was a question for me. <laughs>
1: But for those of you who do want to keep in contact with me, you can, of course, visit my website, which is www.Mina, M-I-N-A-A-B.com. And you can find resources there. You can also sign up for my newsletter where I share journal prompts and different things like that. And then I am highly found on social media, specifically Instagram at Mina, M-I-N-A-A underscore B.
0: There it is. Mina, again, thank you so much for your help today. Thank you, Dan. Uh, you know what I mean? I definitely learned a lot today. And um, I just really, I, I really just want to thank you for the work that you do. You guys are the unsung heroes of the medical field. I just really feel that it's like that, you know, um, you know, obviously they praise the surgeons and, and this, but people don't understand that the work that you guys do and how much work actually goes into it. So uh, for everyone uh, Here at 101 and off the cuff, I just want to thank you for taking time out and coming on the show. And you're a friend of the show. Anytime you want to come on, you're welcome.
1: Well, thank you, Danny. Thank you. Thank, so much for having thank me.
0: you. Thank you so much. Have a good one and have a great rest of your week. Enjoy your weekend and uh, don't psychoanalyze me too much. <laughs> thank All right. you. All right, bye.